we return to our study, excelling in our love for one another. If you are visiting us today uh, in this present study, we're just simply walking through the New Testament books and looking at all of the one another passages that teach us how to love one another in the body of Christ. And uh, last week was Lesson 8 on forgiving one another. And I really wrestled this week whether or not to move on to the next lesson or to uh, stay here on uh, forgiving one another. If you were here last week, you remember I wasn't able to cover the very last part of that message, which was a wonderful parable that Jesus shared on forgiveness in Matthew 18. And I believe that it was so important for you to see this parable that we would just sort of hang out here one more week. And it really gave me the opportunity uh, to actually expand the notes uh, on the uh, parable, which is the backside of your sermon notes today, which I did not have the opportunity to do last week. So the front side is a review of last week. And then the back side will be the uh, new material. So uh, let's quickly look at the uh, review. And I'm just going to run right through this uh, quickly. If you were not here last week, I would strongly encourage you to go to our website and listen to that message. I believe it was a very practical message on what it means to forgive one another biblically. And uh, we looked at four truths. Our one another passage is Colossians 3, verses 12 through 13, as you see in your notes. That reads, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, And this is his command to his followers. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Uh, Mindful of a little boy who was saying his evening prayers with his mother. And as he was saying his prayers, he just ran through the entire family, had a rather large family, and he was praying for all of his uh, brothers and sisters. And his mother noticed that he didn't pray for his oldest brother. And when he concluded his prayer, he said, son, you, you failed to pray for Cliff. Little boy said, I ain't praying for Cliff. Uh, Cliff hit me today, and he, he hurt me. Mother looked at him and said, well, son, you remember what Jesus taught us, that we're to forgive our our enemies? And the little boy said, well, that's my problem. He's not my enemy. He's my brother. (laughs) And uh, I think we all get the point. Uh, We often have a greater difficulty in forgiving those that are closest to us, Uh, whether it's uh, family members, blood family, uh, even within the church family, and so uh, this lesson is on what it means to forgive one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ when we do wrong one another, when we hurt one another, because that is inevitable. Uh, We are all works in progress. None of us have arrived, and so uh, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. Uh, We're going to sin. And there will be times when we do hurt and wound one another. And so we need to know how to forgive one another. And from this passage, 
we saw four truths, and this is the, the review. And the first truth is forgiveness is where it all begins, is to put off all thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors towards others not consistent with my identity in Christ, and replace them with thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors consistent with my identity in Christ, to think about and treat other people as Christ thinks about and treats me. We talked about the heart of Colossians 3 is this concept of putting off and putting on. And the presupposition in the passage is, as believers, because we've not only been saved from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we do have the empowerment. We do have the ability to turn from negative, critical thoughts and attitudes and behaviors and live consistent with our identity in Christ. We cannot do that in our own strength. We cannot do that in the flesh. But as Peter says, if you're a believer, God's already given you all things to pertain, that pertain to life and godliness. You lack absolutely nothing. So if I fail to do what is being commanded here, the failure is not God's failure. The failure is my failure uh, to appropriate the power that God has given me and step out in faith to live consistent with my identity in Christ. And then the second truth that we saw last week is forgiveness is surrendering the right or the desire uh, to hurt the person who, who, who hurt me. So forgiveness is surrendering my perceived right or my desire to hurt the person who hurt me, to surrender that desire to get even, to get back at them. Uh, Colossians 3.13 says, bearing. And that word bearing there can be translated to hold back with one another. And I believe in the context, because he's talking about forgiveness, he's saying that we're to restrain that natural human tendency uh, to strike back, uh, to hurt that person for hurting me. And then the third truth that we saw last week is forgiveness is erasing in my mind the record of the wrong committed against me, and writing forgiven. Uh, Forgiving each other, uh, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Now, we talked much about this last week. We're, We're not trying to say that you can literally forget. And we talked about the fact when God says, I will remember your sins no more, God is omniscient. It doesn't mean that He uh, doesn't remember your, your failures and your sins in the past. What that phrase means is that God will not hold your sin against you. And so when we say erase in our mind the record of the wrong, we're saying that we make a deliberate, intentional decision that we're not going to hold this offense against our offender. But instead we're going to what? Write forgiven. And look at that key truth that we spent a lot of time on last week, bitterness is choosing to make an entry in my mind of the wrong done to me, which I read and reread, hoping for a chance to get even. Forgiveness, on the other hand, is choosing not to take into account the wrong suffered by making, and here's the key, this is the heart of of forgiveness. It is a promise to God, a promise not to hold the wrong against my offender. To forgive is to give my word to God, to God, never to bring up the offense again, either to myself in self-pity, 
to another in gossip or to the offending party in retaliation. In other words, I'm committed to building a bridge. I'm committed to reconciliation. I'm committed to restoration. And then the fourth truth that we saw, and this is often the most neglected truth about forgiveness. Forgiveness is looking at the wound inflicted on me as God's way of drawing my attention to the spiritual need of my offender and calling me to heal the one who wounded me. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And we saw how we were healed through Christ's wounds, and in the same way, God will often allow us to be inflicted, to be wounded, to draw our attention to our offender's needs, to minister healing to them. And then we had to end last week without covering this parable in Matthew 18 that I wanted to, uh, that I wanted to conclude with. And, uh, and another thing we did last week, and if you were not here, I would encourage you to do it. Uh, you remember when we began the message, I had every single person in the sanctuary identify one per- just one person, not two, not three, not four, but one person who has hurt you, who has wronged you. And it could be the person who hurt you worse in the past. It could be the person who hurt you most recent. And as you identified that person, that's when we walked through this message uh, to encourage you to apply these four truths to that person, to that relationship. Now, the value of Matthew 18 is that we're all faced with the question, as you see there at the head of the page, to forgive or not to forgive. And it's very, very important for us as believers to see the consequences of not forgiving one another in the body of Christ. And Jesus gave this parable to His disciples uh, to communicate that. So I would encourage you to open your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 18. And let's read the parable in its entirety. And then uh, we'll walk through it uh, together. And it does, to be honest, it doesn't need a lot of comment. Uh, this parable, you, I don't think you can miss the point of it. The, the power of this para, para, uh, parable is it's its simplicity. And in that simplicity, it's very profound. Because what God is doing in this parable, He's holding up a mirror. <laughs> right, right in front of my face, in front of your face. And He's saying... This is what it looks like when one who's been forgiven by me doesn't extend forgiveness to a brother or sister in my kingdom, in the body of Christ. Now, in the parable, and you'll pick it up, it's pretty simple. The king uh, obviously represents God. The first servant in this parable that we'll come to, that servant represents you. And, uh, and the fact that God has forgiven you uh, of your sin debt. And then there's a second servant. And that's your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ who has hurt you, wounded you. For, uh, and uh, what we see in this parable is the absolute hypocrisy for a believer not to extend forgiveness after receiving God's forgiveness. So follow with me. I'm going to begin reading at verse 21. It was Peter's question that launched Jesus into the parable, and it takes us all the way through the end of the chapter. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, 
How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, here's the parable, for this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king. Again, the king represents God who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents, and that's you. But since he, you, did not have the means to repay his Lord, uh, commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. Verse 26, the slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, before the king, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything, which would be an impossibility. And the Lord of that slave, your Lord, felt compassion and released him, released you, and forgave him, forgave you the debt. Verse 28, but that slave went out, you went out, and you found one of your fellow slaves, one of your fellow servants, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord, to the king, all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Key question, verse 33. Should you not also have had mercy on your, your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger now, who once had been moved with compassion, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Verse 35, so shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Well, let's walk through this. That first point, does forgiveness have limits? That was, of course, Peter's question in verses 21 when he said, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And you need to understand when Peter was saying that, he thought he was being very, very gracious. Because the Jewish rabbis at this time taught that you were only obligated to forgive someone three times. And on the fourth offense, you didn't have to forgive. You could do whatever you wanted. You could slap them in the face, take whatever revenge you needed, whatever. And it, it was a result of a misinterpretation of a passage in, in the book of uh, Amos. We just don't have time to get into that. So when Peter said, should I forgive up to seven times, again, he, he thought he was being very, very gracious. And, I'm, I'm, and there had to be a little humor here. I'm sure Jesus had a little bit of a smile on his face, maybe even a little chuckle. And he said, hey, Peter, would you believe 490 times? 
And notice that point that I make here underneath that question, does forgiveness have limits? Peter actually asked the wrong question. And it's very obvious because of Jesus launching into the parable. The question is not, does forgiveness have limits? The more pertinent question is, why should I forgive at all? And that next sentence is crucial. When I see why I should forgive, then I will come to understand that forgiveness is to be extended to others without limits. And that's what launched Jesus into this parable. Now, that takes us to the second point, another question, which is the key question. Why should I forgive others? Why should I forgive someone who's wronged me? Why should I extend someone who's hurt me? Uh, why should I know a forgiveness that is without limits, that does not take into account wrong suffering? Well, look at verses uh, 23 and 27 again. For this reason, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may com compare to a certain king, again, that's God, who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. And just pause right there for a moment. 10,000 in the Greek text is the word myrios. At the time of the writing of the New Testament, there was no greater number than this in the Greek language. And it was just often used as a figure to uh, indicate just infinity, uh, just a number that uh, could not be uh, counted. Now, if you wanted to be a little more precise, uh, we know if we do our calculations, this would have been worth, uh, in that day, in, in our currency, uh, about $10 million, $10 million in silver, which actually had much greater power in terms of purchasing things. So the point is, this was a, a incredible, incredible debt that would have been impossible for this uh, slave to repay. So verse 25, but since he did not have the means to repay his Lord, the Lord, the king, commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, all that he had in repayment be made. Verse 26, the slave therefore falling down prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. And verse 27 is a key, and the Lord, the king of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. And the point of the parable is, that is what God has done for you as a believer. He has forgiven you of your sin debt. Now look at that statement in your note. Because of the magnitude of God's forgiveness, or magnitude of God's compassion in forgiving me of the incalculable and unpayable debt of sin I owed of God. That's why I should forgive. The reason I should forgive you, no matter what you do to me, no matter how often you may do that to me, is because of the magnitude of God's compassion in forgiving me of the incalculable and unpayable debt of sin I owed to God. Let me just, you can just write down these references, but listen to some of these marvelous references that indicate God's forgiveness 
of your sins once you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate. This is verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him, who've trusted Him. And as far as the east is from the west... So far has He removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who trust Him. That is what God has done for you in forgiving you of your sin debt. He has removed your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. Uh, The book of Micah, precious little uh, minor prophet. In the very last chapter, verse 18 we read, Who is a God like thee, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. We sang about that this morning. He again will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of of the sea. And that's exactly what he did. When Jesus bore our sins on Calvary's tree, when your iniquity was laid on him, your sin debt was laid on him, and Jesus was buried, those sins were buried with him. To be remembered no more by God for those who put their trust in him. Psalm 32, great psalm of David. And he's talking about the forgiveness that he knows through faith. And in verse 1 he says, how blessed is he, how blessed, how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. And then the Apostle Paul quotes David. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 4, he said, But to the one who does not work but believes, we don't work for salvation. You can't work to pay off that sin debt because it's an incalculable, unpayable amount. But he says, To the one who believes, who puts his trust in the finished work of Jesus, to him he justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed, and then here's the quote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So look at that concluding statement. Uh, Well, let's move on to three. Let's just move on to three. So that's what God has done for me. He's, he's delivered me from this uncalculable, unpayable debt. So that brings up the third question. 
well, then what is God's attitude toward me? And here's the point of the parable. A forgiven sinner when I refuse to forgive a fellow believer. Now, folks, this is serious now. What is God's attitude toward me, a forgiven sinner, when I refuse to forgive a fellow believer? And look at, again, verses 28 through 35. Here we have it. He tells us. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, you remember what, the, what, the, what, what you owed the king? Ten million talents. Ten million dollars. Ten million dollars. hundred denarii in our uh, currency would be about 20 bucks. So the king forgave you this uncalculable, unpayable debt. Ten million bucks. And then there's this slave who owes you 20 bucks. And notice, it says, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Does that sound familiar? That's the exact same, exact same thing that that first servant said to the king when he was imploring him to have patience, to have mercy on him. Verse 30, he was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt, ten million bucks, because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, that $20 debt, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Look at that next statement in your sermon notes under three. Here's the point, just summing it up. Since you and I have received God's maximum mercy, who are you to exact justice from others? That's what God is saying here. Since I've extended to you my maximum mercy, who are you to extract justice from others? The mercy I demonstrated to you demands that you do the same toward others. You are to forgive others as Christ forgave you. And not to do so, and here's the key, is the height of hypocrisy. And invokes my anger, God says. In other words, God is saying in this parable, it's totally being a hypocrite. If you refuse to forgive after being forgiven. And you need to understand, if you play the role of a hypocrite, that invokes my anger, my anger uh, towards you. Now, the fourth question, the last question. What are the consequences of forgiveness? What are the consequences of forgiveness? And the answer is, he says in verse 35 that you'll be handed over to what? The torturers. So God delivers me over to the torturers. Now let me just pause right here. I don't want there to be confusion. As a child of God, you've experienced judicial forgiveness. In other words, God has declared you not guilty in his courtroom of justice. And he's declared you justified. He did pay that sin debt. He has forgiven you. And it's on the basis of his work that you have a relationship with him that is secure 
and you have eternal security. But there's also what I would like to call just uh, family forgiveness. In other words, as we walk with God, as believers, we will what? At times grieve Him. Uh, We quench Him. We dishonor Him. We displease Him. And when that happens, it, it doesn't dissolve the relationship. Nothing can ever dissolve that. He's my Father. I'm His child. And that's true for all eternity through faith in Jesus Christ. But when I do sin, it what? Breaks fellowship between us, our communion and our intimacy with one another. And what God is saying here is, and you know this, yes, God loves us with a love that will never fail us, that will never let us go, but a love that will never let us off. He's a disciplining God. He's a chastening God. He's a God that corrects us. And that is something that should strike fear into our hearts. Hebrews 12 talks about this in terms of God's discipline, that we should respect our heavenly fathers, we respected our earthly fathers, and we should have a a holy fear, a reverence for Him if we trifle with His grace and if we live a life of rebellion as a believer, as a sin, that he will come with correction and chasing. And that's what he's talking about here. It's not, it's not the loss of salvation, but it's God handing us over to these torturers, hopefully to get our attention, to bring us to brokenness, to the repentance and obedience of faith, to restore that fellowship with him. Now, what are the torturers? And I believe we're, I believe The answer is Ephesians chapter 4. I believe we're sort of given a list of the torturers. Let me begin reading at verse 30. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's what I was just talking about. If you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit's come to dwell within you. But if you sin, if you refuse to forgive a brother or sister who has hurt you, has wounded you, that grieves the Holy Spirit. That disappoints, displeases God. So verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And I believe in verse 31, we find what the torturers are. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. In other words, God is saying, if you will not forgive your brother or sister, after I have forgiven you, I'm going to deliver you over to the tortures. I'm going to live, deliver you over these, to these six things that are going to do a number on your life. And I'm doing that to get your attention, to bring you to brokenness, to turn to me, to learn my love, to learn my forgiveness. Now, let's look at the tortures. The first one is bitterness. Now, how would you define bitterness? Bitterness is resisting God's grace by refusing to forgive, which results in my hurt becoming infected with resentment. When you do not forgive, you're going to find yourself in the gall of resentment. And if we're to be very honest, that's resentment towards God. Because if you refuse to forgive, what you're saying is, I don't trust God's sovereignty. I don't believe God's really under, in control, that He's using all things for my spiritual good to teach me to be like Jesus, to teach me to love like Jesus, to teach me to forgive as Jesus. 
See, that was the key in Joseph's life. Here was his brothers who nearly killed him. And they would have killed him if it not had been for the intervention of the older brother, Reuben. Well, they didn't kill him, but they what? Sold him into slavery. Which, without going into a lot of detail, threw him into 13 dark, lonely years of suffering. Most of those years in an Egyptian prison because of the evil act of his brothers. Now, did Joseph develop a bitterness towards God, a resentment? Did he, become inf- did he allow his hurt to become infected? No, it's obvious he did not. Because later, when he's reunited with his brothers and has an opportunity to restore his relationship with them, he looks to them and he says what? What you did to me, you meant it for evil. You were trying to hurt me. You were trying to take me out because of your jealousy, your envy, your hatred towards me. But did he stop there? He said, no. You did it for evil, but God meant it for what? For good, for my good, for the greater plan and purposes of God. So Joseph was willing to trust God's heart when he could not trace God's hand. When there was no rhyme or reason to his life, in those dark years in that Egyptian prison, when, when he, I mean, he was lost, he was without a clue what God was doing, he was willing to trust God's sovereignty, that God ultimately was in control. And that's what saves us from bitterness and resentment. And when you fall into bitterness, it's because ultimately you're resentful toward God allowing this to happen in your life. You think the resentment's towards the individual, but it's ultimately towards God. Look at the next one, wrath. Here's the second torture. This is reliving the offense over and over again in my mind until I'm consumed in the fires of revenge. That's where we just play the video over and over and over in our mind. We just remind ourselves over and over the wrong that was done to us. Instead of, as we talked about last week, nipping that in the bud and writing what? Forgiven. Not taking into account wrong suffered. And folks, the, the evidence of a, of a bitter person, a resentful person, is they remember details. I mean, they can remember every little detail, every word, the tone, every little thing that happened because they relive that. that it's, it's just before them at all times. Look at the third one, anger. And this is focusing my energy and resources to attack my offender instead of seeking reconciliation. Focusing my energy and resources to attack the person who hurt me instead of seeking reconciliation. See, God gave us the ability to become angry, not to attack one another, but to attack problems. To resolve issues in a godly manner. And let me just say one thing very quickly here, and I wish I had more time to address this issue. But forgiveness and trust are two different things, but they do relate to one another. In other words, you can truly forgive someone but may not be able to trust them at this point because sort of the record of their, of their life. But here's the key. Listen to this very carefully. It all begins with forgiveness. Forgiveness provides the opportunity for trust to be rebuilt. And you have not forgiven your offender if you're not willing to allow trust to be rebuilt. If you're not willing for there to be reconciliation. 
restoration and to actually work for that. Now, again, you can't control the other person's reactions and response. Sometimes they will not reciprocate. But if you've truly, truly forgiven, forgiveness always opens the door for reconciliation. It always provides the opportunity for trust to be rebuilt. And if you refuse to do so, that's not forgiveness. Look at the next one, clamor. This is harsh words. And when somebody has an unforgiving spirit, there's a harshness about them, a sort of pugnaciousness about them. Uh, and it's harsh words concerning my offender in order to justify my bitterness, wrath, and anger. In other words, I'm like a lawyer building a case, and I'm justifying uh, my bitterness, my wrath, my anger. And then slander. Slander is la launching a character assassination on the person who hurt me. Names are called. Walls are built. Enemies are made. Always at war, never at peace. And this is where we go back to last week where we said forgiveness, in essence, is a promise that you make to God, a promise that you're not going to recall the offense in your own mind, that when that happens, you're going to turn to God, you're going to choose to forgive, but also you're not going to go behind the back of the one who's offended you and build a case upon, on them and slander them before others. And then look at the last one, malice. Malice is returning evil for evil. Returning evil for evil in the name of God. In other words, you believe you're justified for your actions which is the epitome, the point of the parable, of hypocrisy and sin. Slowly and painfully, the acid of resentment eats away my peace and joy, leaving me in the dark, lonely prison cell of misery. So again, I think you see the parable could not be clearer. And if you refuse to forgive... God hands you over to these torturers. And his purpose in doing so is not because he hates you, because he loves you. And he wants to see you to see the consequences of your sin. He wants to see the, you to see the pure hypocrisy of being forgiven $10 million and for forgiving to forgive your brother of 20 bucks. And he's saying if you've truly been forgiven, that's what gives us the ability to forgive. Now that last question... And we sort of ended here last week as well, but we'll do it again. Do you want out of the prison cell? Have you been delivered over to the tortures and you're struggling with resentment, bitterness? Do you want out? Well, the key, the key to get you out of that prison cell, it's in the hand of your offender. That's the reality. Forgive the one who offended you. Forgive the one who hurt you. Forgive the one who wounded you. And God has set you free. God will deliver you. But what does forgiveness mean? God, I surrender my desire to hurt this person for hurting me. God, I, I choose in a very deliberate, intentional way not to allow my mind to dwell on this wrong, not to take account of that wrong, but instead to put forgiven there. And every time I'm tempted with bitterness, with uh, resentment, uh, with anger, I'm going to flee to you, and I'm going to focus on your forgiveness of me, which gives me the empowerment now to forgive this individual for what he's done to me.
And then, yes, I'm going to view this offense against me as you bringing to my attention the need of my offender and giving me an opportunity to reach out to my offender to bring healing, to bring blessing to them. And instead of building a wall, to build a bridge if they'll give me that opportunity. Bow with me in prayer. Well, bottom line, you have a choice, and the choice is pretty clear, to forgive or not to forgive. There's not a single person in this sanctuary that has not been hurt, that has not been wronged, and it's going to happen in the future going forward. And I hope you see the key is really focus on what you have in Jesus. The fact that he forgave you of that incalculable, unpayable debt, sin debt. And if you have been the recipient of God's maximum mercy, how can you demand justice from others? But even as he extended mercy to you, you're to extend mercy to others. So let me just allow a few moments of silence. And maybe you are one of those that's been in that prison cell. You've been tortured by that bitterness and the anger and the clamor would go on and on and give you an opportunity to be set free to let out of the prison cell by choosing to forgive your offender and to leave here to take whatever steps necessary to live that decision out. Father, in celebrating the Lord's Supper, you command us to remember. And Lord, that is actually something we should do every single day. To remember Jesus and the incalculable, unpayable sin debt that he delivered us from, that he released us from, as he canceled out our sin debt. And not only canceled out that sin debt, but then deposited right into our account all his righteousness to give us a right standing before you, not on the basis of works, but just a free gift of grace through faith. And Lord, I believe we've seen today the absolute hypocrisy for someone who has received the benefits of God's maximum mercy then to attempt to extract justice from another individual. And I believe we've seen that even as you have extended mercy to us, we are to extend extend mercy to others. Even as you forgave us, we're to forgive others. So, Lord, give us the grace to live that out. For those that may be in that prison cell of the torturers, Lord, give them the grace to be released, to be set free as they take 
that key of their prison cell right out of the hand of their offender as they extend forgiveness. So, Father, give us grace to live this truth out because apart from you we can do nothing. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.